a prophecy revealed to a young Carl Tanzler by a long-lost countess, who spoke to him saying that she was his distant aunt, would tell him that his true love would be an exotic, dark-haired, younger woman. This vision would reveal the face of the exotic woman that would possess Carl's soul and be his mate forever. His search for her brings us to the curious tale we get to dive into today. This is one you won't soon forget. If you haven't heard of this one, brace yourself. It's about to get uncomfortable. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. I need to add a warning for this episode. It deals with some pretty disturbing stuff in the area of necrophilia. So if you feel the need to skip this one, I completely understand. I'll catch you on the next one. With that graphic content warning out of the way, I will proceed. Born in Germany on February 8, 1877, as George Karl Tanzler. He was raised in Germany, but somehow made his way to Australia by way of India for what he believed would be just his visit in his 30s. He actually stayed there for a little over a decade. At this stage of his life, he fancied himself to be something of a seafarer and came up with the name Karl von Kossel. He purchased boats and proclaimed his skills as an electrical engineer. He also claims he purchased an island in the Pacific. He also began work in building a trans-ocean flyer. I couldn't find if he completed this work, or any of it, but building an aircraft of sorts would pop up later in his to-do list, as you'll soon hear. While in Australia, World War I broke out in 1914, and because of his German descent, he was held as a prisoner of war in a concentration camp. Probably not what you might automatically think when it comes to the term concentration camp. It was a prison, yes, but they were not treated harshly. Trial Bay was in a beautiful turquoise-colored bay surrounded by tall cliffs on the north coast of South Wales. This is where he was held in a castle-esque prison they revamped slightly for their quote-unquote guests. They were required to follow a strict schedule of rising and meals and bedtime, and were also required to perform physical labor, a lot of which improved the prison. But others included gardening, cleaning, furniture building, and even landscaping, wink, wink, which really meant land clearing. The prisoners were also offered education in a variety of topics such as language, engineering, mathematics, etc and they also offered such distractions as a library, theater, and orchestra. They were allowed to move about the compound freely, and there were opportunities for fishing and swimming, tennis, and bowling. While Carl was there, he was spending his free time to build a boat in order to escape. This was never accomplished. I guess for further safety, prisoners following the end of the war were not allowed to return to their homes prior to the war. So, 
Carl Tanzler, von Kossel, was sent to Holland for a prisoner's exchange. Being allowed to return to Germany, he sought out his mother and stayed with her for three years. During this window of time, Carl met and married Doris Schaefer, and they had two daughters, Aisha, who was born in 1922, and Clarista, who was born in 1924. In 1926, Carl sailed to America by way of Cuba, landing in Zephyrillis, Florida. He would be aided by his sister, who was already living there, and then he would later send for his wife and children. However, once they got there, he would leave his family behind and move to Key West, Florida. He would find work at the U.S. Marine Hospital as a radiology technician. Here's where I should note. A technician is not the same thing as a doctor, because apparently it gets a little ambiguous here in a bit. Also, this is when he gained count status and began signing his papers as Count Karl von Kossel. On April 22, 1930, a vision walked into his life. 19-year-old Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos came into the Count's office for a treatment. She was already pretty far along in her diagnosis of tuberculosis. Even with her coughing and hacking up blood, her frail little frame and pale skin, Carl knew this was the woman from his vision all those years ago. It was love at first sight. Despite the 25-plus year age difference, he promised her that he would take care of her even in her death. But before that, he would do everything in his power to cure her. So, a little backstory on our heavenly walking petri dish of disease. Maria was born in 1910 and was the middle daughter of Francisco Hoyos and Aurora. When she was 17, she married Luis Mesa. I'm not sure if she was pregnant at the time of the marriage, but Maria miscarried their first child. The information varies after this. What we know for sure is that Luis abandons his young wife not long into their marriage and moves to Miami. Some articles say he left her after a second miscarriage. Others say it was because of her diagnosis. Either way, she was technically married, but then again, so was Carl. So <laughs> why let a little thing like marriage interfere with fate? Practically a doctor, in his own mind, he started in right away. He borrowed expensive equipment and vials of medication in hopes to cure her. and. Since he was there, I mean, he took all this stuff to her parents' house, he might as well court her, too. He'd lavish her with gifts and flowers and regular proposals of marriage. He confessed his love for her and told her of his vision that it was foreseen she would come into his life. However, the young girl fighting for her life did not have time or the inclination for courtship. As breathing became more and more of a priority, she declined his offers daily, but he was persistent. Sadly, despite all of Carl's best efforts, Maria lost her battle with tuberculosis on October 25, 1931. Not long after her death, Carl was let go from the hospital. I guess they figured out where all of their missing equipment and medications had disappeared to not to mention Carl's erratic and bizarre behavior after the death of Maria. 
Count Karl Tanzler von Kossel was grief-stricken. He insisted to be allowed to pay for all of the funeral expenses and, in addition, with his parents' blessing, commissioned an above-ground mausoleum in the Key West Cemetery. An elegant structure of the purest white with a marble plaque engraved with her maiden name, no expense was spared. And it was also installed with a, a telephone, you know, so they could talk whenever she wanted. Thus became a new ritual. He was so deeply in love with Maria Hoyos Mesa that he could not bear to be apart from her. He would go to her crypt almost nightly, spending hours there inside, with the door closed and locked. Here he claims that her spirit would have long conversations with him, and she consented to be his bride. And before too long, she would sing him a song repeating her request to take her from the dark and lonely tomb. So, in April of 1933, Carl whisked his corpse bride to his home. Apparently, while these conversations were happening, he was also injecting her body with formaldehyde, attempting to keep his beloved youthful and not so squishy. As far as he was concerned, they were married. She was placed in the marital bed, and Carl even hung up an intimacy curtain between them for the nights she was feeling shy. Soon, the formaldehyde was no longer fighting the effects of decomposition. <sighs> he would douse her in perfumes and oils to keep the <clears throat> odor to a minimum, but it was a losing battle. Because of the radiation treatments before her death, she had already lost her hair, but after requesting the strands that had fallen out from her mother, he created a wig for her. Still unwilling to let her go, he resorted to more, um, permanent options. He began by using mortician's wax to re-sculpt her face and would eventually use plaster to cover that once the skin on her face dissolved. He replaced her actual eyeballs with glass eyes. Her muscles became soft, so the skin slipped off. For this solution, he soaked silk cloth in wax and gently reconstructed her limbs and torso and face. Then he firmed that up with plaster of Paris. He sewed her bones together with piano wire, and then using bent wire hangers for stability, she was able to stay in one piece. When her youthful figure lost its shape, he opened her up and filled the empty orifice with sawdust and cotton, and any old thing he had laying around. His clothes, fabric, that's, that's what he had laying around. He wasn't much on housekeeping, apparently. He lovingly dressed her in stockings, dresses, and robes, jewelry, and gloves. In 1940, after seven years of Carl Tanzler living and sleeping beside his corpse bride, Maria's older sister stopped by because she had heard rumors that someone removed her sister from the tomb. Carl welcomed Florinda into their home. When he first took her to see Maria Elena, she thought it was a wax replica. 
and, of course, being a normal human being, was shocked when she discovered the truth of what was being done to her sister's actual body. She immediately called the authorities, and soon Carl Tanzler found himself behind bars. The corpse of Maria Mesa would be autopsied, and it's amazing that he wasn't also charged with necrophilia. Because, you guessed it, not only did he make amendments to keep his bride looking young and supple, and hard as a rock, apparently, he believed in consummating his marriage and made alterations to her person to allow that to happen with the assistance of paper tubes. While the officers chatted with Count Carl, the coroners decided to put Maria on display at a local funeral home. The scene grabbed media attention from across the globe, and more than 6,000 people came to look at her distorted remains, as if the family hadn't already been through enough. Side note, less than a couple years later, the Hoyos family would lose their youngest daughter to the fateful disease, and then their son-in-law would contract it and pass away a few years after that. Carl would be tested as to his mental stability and deemed sane and mentally competent to stand trial for, quote, wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization, end quote. I'm not quite sure how that happened. A Key West newspaper would write, quote, scientist who stole body freed from jail. Friends Today posted $1,000 bond and obtained release from jail on Carl Tanzler von Kossel, the aged scientist who stole the body of a young woman he loved from her burial vault and kept the body in his home for seven years. Von Kossel will be tried in a county criminal court in November on charges of maliciously disturbing the grave of Mrs. Elena Mesa, who died in 1931. End quote. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. On October 9, 1940, at the Monroe County Courthouse, a pretrial hearing was held. He claimed he was granted the authority to build his love a mausoleum by the family. Only, he was the only one with access to the vault. Then, after being caught, he told the officers that after two years, he came to visit the vault and discovered signs of decay in the girl's body. 
he felt he could better care for his former patient, so he removed her and brought her to his home. According to the local paper, quote, Von Kossel was regarded as highly eccentric, but persons who knew him supposed he was still trying to perfect a permanent embalmer, end quote. I think the courts and all involved knew that nothing was going to happen to Carl Tanzler as the statute of limitations for the crime of grave robbing was long past. I think they all just wanted to hear the story, and Tanzler was happy to oblige. Neighbors would offer that they had seen him dancing with the corpse through the window, and he would tell everyone in town about his beautiful wife, even though no one ever saw her out and about. Well. Now they know why. Oh, but wait, there's more. Caring for a disintegrating corpse can only take up so much time in a day, and he did promise to take care of her for always. So when he wasn't spending time with the corpse of Maria Hoyos, he was working on something. Can you even guess? Let me spare you the suspense. A spaceship. He was building her a spaceship. When it was discovered on his property and he was asked about it, he stated, matter-of-factly, he would use his airship to take Maria Elena, quote, high into the atmosphere so that radiation from outer space could penetrate Elena's tissues and restore life to her solemnant form, end quote. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mentally fit, all right. The Dade City Banner would also talk about his spaceship that he'd been working on, saying, quote, In the yard was a portion of a strange, dilapidated airplane, and other parts of the craft were found in the garage or barn. The aircraft appeared in photographs found by the officers, and the picture bore dates of 1931. It had no wings, although it had nine-cylinder radial engine. The strange craft bore two large wooden wheels, and the entire construction was of wood put together in small strips and nailed to the struts and ribs. It was labeled in the photo album as Elena's Airship to Heaven. Pictures showed the girl's body within the craft. End quote. When all the witnesses came forward and all the stories were told, suddenly the case was dropped. No further charges, no fines. He was free to go. But before he left, he requested to have the corpse back. That, of course, was denied, and she was finally able to be buried in an unmarked grave so that she would never be disturbed again. But here's the thing he didn't raise a fuss because he had long since made a death mask. You know where I'm going with this. After he was released, he decided it might be best to move away from the Key West area, so he headed back to Zephyrillus. Side note, not sure when exactly, but his estranged wife moved on to Michigan sometime after their youngest daughter, Clarista, died of diphtheria on June 9, 1934. Before Carl left Key West, he decided that one last visit to her mausoleum would be in order. Perhaps he was hoping the authorities returned her body to its original resting place, but was sadly disappointed to find it permanently vacated. He then decided that no one should have use of it, 
It was said he used dynamite to destroy the mausoleum, but again, no charges were filed. In 1944, he set up shop proclaiming himself to have reached physician status in the move, I guess, and opened a laboratory at his new residence. A sign reading Dr. Carl von Kossel's laboratory would hang on his front door. His home reflected that belief. He had a collection of microscopes and vials of chemicals and experiments scattered around the house. In 1947, he writes his autobiography, and it gets published in a pulp science fiction mag called Fantastic Adventures. In 1950, he finally got his United States citizenship in Tampa, Florida. Neighbors would later say that Von Kossel would have his spaceship delivered to his Pasco City home, but with his busy laboratory business and bustling organ repair business, he didn't really have time to work on his airship. Plus, his reasons for getting it completed were now gone. The reporters printed, quote, Zephyrillus residents say a strange craft was brought there by a truck, but apparently von Kossel gave up the possibilities of his flight to the heavens, end quote. Von Kossel, separated from his love, used a death mask to create a life-size dummy of her and lived with it until his death in 1952. According to the Dade City banner, they printed after his death, the officers found, quote, a metal cylinder about five and a half feet in length was found on a shelf above a table wrapped in silken cloth and a robe was a waxen image of a woman, end quote. They would also write on the 15th of August, quote, Deputy finds recluse dead in Zephyrillus. Dr. Carl Tanzler von Kossel, who once kept the body of a dead woman in his home for years until its discovery in 1940, was found dead in his home Wednesday morning, end quote. Apparently his neighbor had noticed the mail piling up on the front porch, and when he tried knocking, no one answered. He was 75 years old, living alone, surviving on canned sardines, and earning a small income repairing church organs. The officers came by the home and discovered all the doors locked, but the lights were on, so they broke in using a side door. There, laying on the floor, was the decomposing body of Carl Tanzler. The coroner said he died of natural causes about three weeks prior. Quote, Several pictures were tacked on the wall near the bed, believed to be the newspaper pictures of the girl whose body he had kept in his Key West home. A large blue incandescent bulb was suspended over the bed and clothing was strewn about the room. Although the stench made a thorough examination impossible, they uncovered a photo album, a diary, and several letters and other documents. End quote. His actual legal wife, Doris, who also helped him pay his bills, would die in 1977. His oldest daughter would live until December of 1998 having three children and five grandchildren at the time of her death. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat.
December 17, 1979. A 23-year-old mortician's apprentice was arrested for kidnapping a 33-year-old corpse and the hearse he was in, instead of delivering him to his own funeral. She was on her way, but after seeing the family, decided to instead spend a few more days with him herself, planning to end it all with a drug overdose. From an article written by Jamie Diaz for the Sacramento Bee, December 19, 1979, quote, A drawn and tense Karen Greenlee, who has confessed in her own writing to have been a necrophiliac, quietly admitted to Sacramento Superior Court jury Friday that she climbed into coffins to have sexual contact with corpses, end quote. Expecting it to be her farewell notice, she left behind in the coffin a long and detailed letter about her life and the struggles she's had in being a necrophiliac. But after being discovered and having her stomach pumped, she would fully recover and her letter would blow her case wide open. Although 92% of necrophiles are reported to be males, Karen Greenlee is one exception and may have single-handedly brought it into the mainstream back in the early 1980s. Greenlee was very open about her feelings and experiences to a few select interviews. She'd say, quote, I find the odor of death very erotic. There are death odors and then there are death odors. Now you get your body that's been floating in the bay for two weeks or a burn victim that doesn't attract me much. But a freshly embalmed corpse is something else. There is also this attraction to blood. When you're on top of a body, it tends to purge blood out of its mouth while you're making passionate love. You'd have to be there, I guess. End quote. Uh, no thank you. <laughs> Following her arrest in 1979, Greenlee would ultimately confess to having sex with between 20 to 40 male corpses, calling it an addiction. With the exception of the breaking and entering into mortuaries and tombs, she claimed she would be honest with the men she would date, the the living ones, and they were only shocked when she would get caught or lose her job. She would say, quote, With guys, they always felt I went for the bodies because I was hard up, and if I went to bed with them, then that would change me, and they would be the one who would give me such satisfaction I wouldn't need those old corpses anymore. I've run into that a lot. Sometimes I had guys come on to me just for that reason. End quote. <laughs> Believe it or not, necrophilia wasn't illegal in the state of California. So Greenlee was only charged and convicted for illegally driving a hearse and interfering with a burial after she abducted the body of her 33-year-old man. Her sentence was 11 months of jail time and a fine of $255. Oh, and she was required to go to mandatory therapy as well. While she wishes she wasn't quite so forthcoming with her mm, habits, she does miss being banned from the field. She confessed, quote, Even if I wasn't a necrophile, I like mortuary work. I enjoy embalming and everything, end quote. After her case was completed, she resumed her extracurricular activities and happened to find the case file about the man's corpse she had kidnapped. She discovered it was scheduled to be exhumed. She recalls, quote, His mother wanted the body exhumed, said she wouldn't bury her cat there. 
On the day he was supposed to be exhumed, I snuck out into a field across from where he was buried. I sat out in the field and watched them dig up the body and give him to his other mortician. They shipped him back to Michigan. End quote. Since gaining notoriety, Greenlee has become something of an unofficial spokesperson for necrophiliacs. She says, quote, It's almost a fad. They're not really necrophiles, but pseudo-necrophiles, like a death cult. But there are probably a lot of people who would do it if they had the opportunity. End quote. She continues saying, quote, For a while I found myself thinking, Yeah, this isn't normal. Why can't I be like other people? Why doesn't the same pair of shoes fit me just right? I went through all that personal hell and finally I accepted myself and realized that's just me. That's just my nature and I might as well enjoy it. I'm miserable when I try to be something I'm not. After 1979 when I was put on probation, part of the probation requirement was that I seek therapy. I had a really nice social worker. She was cool, very non-judgmental. The more I talked to these people, the more I realized necrophilia makes sense for me. The reason I was having a problem with it was because I couldn't accept myself. I was still trying to live my life by other people's standards. To accept it was peace. These people who are always trying to change me only helped me get myself more in touch with my feelings. I used to go from the therapist's office to the funeral home. It didn't work, folks. End quote. I don't really know what to say to that. So this last segment, yeah, there's more, has been requested several times, but he always falls outside of my timeline. So this is as close as I can get to covering the Green River Killer. Stay tuned if you can stomach it. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. Gary Ridgway, better known as the Green River Killer, managed to evade detection for almost 20 years. He would eventually admit to and be charged with 48 counts of murder, confessing to upwards of 70, but it is still believed to be even more. In his court statements, he would claim that he killed so many he couldn't keep count. He didn't know their names. He couldn't remember their faces. He didn't have a type. No one is really sure when his deviant behavior began, but the first body was found floating in the Green River in Washington in 1982. 
Another four were found elsewhere along the river and its banks. His modus operandi was usually picking up prostitutes, runaways, or young females who were out on their own. His victims ranged in the ages of 14 to 24, on average, and most were sex workers. He would happily admit in an interview, quote, I picked up prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes. I also picked prostitutes because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. And if they had any money on them, they ended up paying me for their own murder. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. End quote. He would strangle them as he was having sex with them or sometimes in a different order. Then he would discard the bodies in water, in overgrown forest areas, or around garbage dumps, and more. To throw police off investigations, he would sometimes dismember the bodies and place parts in different areas, sometimes even crossing over state lines. Later on in his murdering career, which is how he phrases it, he began to bury the bodies in order to discourage himself from coming back to revisit the crime. And by that I mean, yes, he would come back again and again to have sex with them. He'd say, quote, in the evening, right after I got off work and go have sex with her, and that'd last for one or two days, like till the flies came, and then I'd bury them and cover them up, and I'd look for another, end quote. According to the women in his life, he had an insatiable sexual appetite. He was married three times and would still hire prostitutes as well. His issue with prostitutes is complicated. He would admit to frequently using their services, but also believed that they were the most vile creatures that walked the earth. He wanted the sex, but was angry he had to pay for it. When asked why he was having sex with corpses, one of his answers was, quote, One thing, you don't have to pay for it. She was already well, she was already dead, end quote. He would complain about the way they looked, the way they dressed. They weren't fooling anyone and was angry they were in the same neighborhoods he frequented. He would see them on his way to work every day. Which, interestingly enough, he held the same job for more than 30 years and none of his ex-wives or girlfriends had any idea of his extracurricular activities. When he was arrested, they were all completely caught off guard. His son, who was an adult when the arrest came down, refused to believe it. He would say his father attended every single one of his sporting events, never missed a birthday, and never raised a hand toward anyone. Also, flying in the face of typical serial killer behavior, uh, I mean, not that I would know, of course, <clears throat> is that he never kept trophies. The Washington Post would print, quote, Before his confessing began, Ridgway, now 54, had been remarkable for his ability to keep his mouth shut. Investigators would say that from the time he started strangling prostitutes in 1982 until he cut the deal this year that spared him the death penalty, he never told anyone about his killings. 
After his arrest, his flabbergasted third wife, who had been with him for 17 years, told one of his lawyers, he treated me like a newlywed, end quote. He claims his main goals were to kill as many as possible and not get caught. He would leave false evidence behind. He'd wear different shoes to leave different tracks. He even colored one of the victim's hair a completely different color. Ridgway later explained that he didn't necessarily find necrophilia more sexually satisfying, but having sex with the deceased reduced his need to obtain a living victim and thus limited his exposure to being caught. In a television interview, Ridgway would talk about how he would make time to kill quite a few in a short window of time. Quote, you don't know them, they don't know you. The police won't look as hard as if they were a senator's daughter or something, you know. I hated them. They're just pieces of trash to me, End quote. His ex-wives would claim that he liked to take them out into the woods or other semi-public places to have sex, and it wasn't until all the news came out they realized they were having intercourse near or directly above his victim. His second wife, the mother of his son, reported that their marriage deteriorated in part because he liked to sneak up behind her in the woods and scare her. At one point, he choked her at least once before they were divorced. He claims he thought often about killing his first wife and his second wife and even his mother because, surprise, surprise, he came from an abusive home. He was extremely aware of his outward appearance. He just wanted to be a regular Joe and not stand out. He mentioned that one reason he wanted to kill his second wife was to avoid being labeled as a loser with two failed marriages. So it's better that she disappears somewhere, is never seen from again? I don't know. He was considered well-liked at his job and within his community, and his features didn't make him stand out in a crowd. He'd say, quote, I acted in a way with prostitutes to make them feel more comfortable and got in their comfort zone. Here's a guy, not muscle-bound, just an ordinary John. And yet, that was their downfall. My appearance was different from what I really was. End quote. That statement is so super creepy to me. Despite the efforts of the police, he was able to stay under the radar for all those years. And, get this, they even picked him up for questioning twice. One of those times he was ID'd by his truck, and another time he was asked to take a polygraph test, and he passed. Still believing he was a potential suspect, they kept his information on file and eventually asked for a hair and saliva sample, which, feeling pretty confident, he freely gave. This would be his undoing. They unfortunately had to wait for the technology to catch up to them, but it finally did. On September 10, 2007, the semen taken from four of the 1987 victims matched Ridgway's saliva sample. Then, on November 30th, Ridgway was arrested on four counts of aggravated murder. After a reign of 20 years, the Green River Killer was in custody. After his trial, he was handed down 48 life sentences in prison with an additional 480 years without the chance of parole. 
Whew, that was a tough one. Now I feel we all need to go wash out our brains with something positive. And remember, friends don't let friends sleep with dead people. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Be sure to follow over on Instagram or Facebook at Bag of Bones Podcast. And I'll meet you back here next week. No, I promise. I'll be here. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.